Welcome to On Renewal, where we explore how we build the capacity to adapt to change and create conditions for regeneration in ourselves, our organizations, and the world around us. This is your host, Sam Sager, and today's conversation is with entrepreneur and writer Dan Shipper. It continues our theme of looking at how we work and how our work shapes us. Dan is a co-founder of Every, a writer's collective, and on the surface, he writes about productivity. But it's not just through the lens of tools and technology. Rather, he explains how it's really about emotional regulation. And if we want to understand our desires and challenges with getting things done, we need to go beneath the surface into psychology, physiology, our relationships, our environment, and so much more. I got a ton out of this conversation, and I think you will too. So let's jump in. Dan, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. I've been uh, been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So many different threads, so many different themes I, I want to dig into you, with you. The main one to kick off is I'm fascinated by how your philosophy around productivity is evolving in real time. Can you share a bit about that journey and, and where it's going? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, I think like I got really into productivity when I f- started my first company, and this was in... 20, I guess like 2011, 2012 was when I really got into startups. And I think what you notice when you're a young entrepreneur, like running a company is you're like, oh my God, I have so much shit to do. And like, I need to figure out how to get it done. Um, and not only that, but you're trying to learn so much um, as you, as you're you know running your company, because you're like, there's so much I don't know. And there's so many skills I need to have. I want to like read as much as I can and talk to as many people as I can. And um that's when you sort of start getting obsessed with productivity. So I got really into note taking. I got into to-do list systems. I got into Evernote. Um, and um, I think that stayed with me. Um, like that stayed with me for the last like 10 years or so. And uh, after I sold my, uh, my last company, um, I was sort of starting to look for what I wanted to do next. And that's like around the time where I started having panic attacks, hmm. um, which has been like a, another like thread for me uh, yeah. in my life is like, okay, I want to get a lot of shit done. And then, Ooh, like as I'm starting to get stuff done, I'm starting to feel a lot of anxiety or like even at, at the time when I'm like, when I'm supposed to be at the top of my game and maybe the happiest, cause I just sold my company is like, I'm starting to have panic attacks. So I just want to yeah. like note that as like a part of this. Cause it, it really comes, comes back later. So, uh, after I sold my last company, started having panic attacks, started to, started to deal with that, started to, uh, kind of like unravel that for myself. Um, and then, um, you know, over the next couple of years, I, I really started to think about what, do I, what I want to do next with my life. Um, and I did lots of things. I wrote a novel, I invested, um, I worked at an incubator, I did lots of stuff. And wow. eventually I was like, I'm still obsessed with productivity. Like I'm still obsessed with note taking and to-do lists and like all this stuff. For some reason, I just can't get it out of my head. So I'm going to start a productivity software company. Um, and I wanted to do something like Notion or Rome or something like that. And the way that I um, decided to start that business was I said, well, before I write any software, I want to interview users because I have some ideas about like what I want, but I don't know what anyone else wants. So, um, and my hack for, for doing user interviews was why don't I tell people I'm starting a newsletter and I want to interview you for my newsletter. Um, oh, that's good. 
and uh, an interview of you about your productivity systems. And that was like a way for me to get in front of interesting people and be like, how do, how does their, how do their systems work so that I could, um, so that I could, uh, eventually build a software product. And I figured in the meantime, I love writing. I like talking to people. I'll write the interviews and maybe I'll build an audience that I could like launch the product to eventually. So yeah, makes sense. So I started Super Organizers, which um, is a newsletter that I currently still write underneath every, um, and just did a lot of productivity interviews. And yeah, getting to learn from the most interesting, productive, smartest people in the world about like how they take notes and how they do their productivity systems, like you start to you start to see patterns. And I think all of this stuff started to coalesce for me as I got deeper and deeper into every and deeper and deeper into Super Organizers, where I started to feel like um, everybody's looking for a perfect system. And, and, and all the systems that we're looking at are like about, they're about software or scheduling, like calendars and all that kind of stuff. And I started to realize as I talked to all these people, how much their, um, the way that they used productivity systems was about regulating their emotions. Um, it was really about like, oh my God, I have this like deep fear of letting things slip through the cracks. Or I have this deep fear of like making the wrong decision. Um, and so like a to-do list or like a list of mental models, for example, like are ways that we help ourselves like regulate those fears. There's also like positive emotions involved in productivity. Like it's, it's a whole range of things, but all these tools are designed to help with those things. And um, they work to some degree. They really do. But that was like a big frame shift for me um, in thinking about, well, if all these tools are about learning how to regulate our emotions, um, it seems like emotional regulation is like a really big deal. Um, and maybe it like you can broaden the set of things that you try and do um, and and in the name of productivity, if you if you understand it as um, an emotional an emotional regulation um, challenge, um, you start to think about like, how does my brain work? Um, how does my psychology work? How does my neuroscience work? Uh, how does the neuroscience of the brain tell us that our brains function? Maybe how does my body work? Um, or for example, you start to think about like one of the biggest ways that we regulate our emotions is our interpersonal relationships. Like mm -hmm. how does that work? Um, and like, why are maybe my relationships not as good as I want them to be? Or like, how do they sap me of energy or create energy for me? All that kind of stuff. Um, and so that is like a, that's a a much broader vista of things to, uh, to like look at and explore. And I'm still quite into, um, like the tools for thought type stuff, but it's like a small part of like, I think what I'm currently kind of nerding out about. Yeah. So you're saying it's not as simple as just picking between notion or Rome. And <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think I, for myself, I feel like I had this journey where you're always looking for the new tool. And if I just find the right tool, it all click into place. And then you realize there's all this stuff beneath the surface around what are you working on? How am I working? You know, what's yeah. motivating me? What's my environment like? And so it's just fascinating to start to see how this like theme of productivity really just snowballs into all these other areas. I'm curious for yourself, once that shift happened where you're like, oh, this is not just about the tool, it's about so much more, did that change your own personal approach to productivity at all? Yeah, I got, um, well, for one thing, I'm like, I think way less interested in building up the perfect note-taking system um, and like dreaming about what that could look like and whatever. Like, yeah. I just take notes in Apple Notes, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, you've made the shift like, in the meme. I really, I'm, I'm on the other side of the midway yeah. curve on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I still kind of get caught by that every once in a while. Um, I think for me, the the one, the one thing that still lingers is like I have this deep desire to like remember stuff I read and like really mm. learn stuff. Like I have so many things I want to learn is like the big thing, and yeah. so the t- the temptation is. Um, is to like make this complicated thing so that I could like become that like learning machine type person, you know? And yeah. I think I like, I think I, I do learn a lot from the stuff I read, but I, it always could be better. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm way less into um, like, uh, like building complicated note taking setups or figuring out the perfect tag system or whatever, or like envisioning how I could like make my own note taking app. I still use like Readwise and stuff. Um, and I still use some of some of the other tools for thought um, apps. Like I love this app called Muse, which we can we can totally talk about. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like a visual iPad tool for thinking. It's really it's really great. Um, and I'm I'm way more interested in like reading about psychology and like therapy modalities. And you know, I don't know. I'm more interested in like exercise. Like all this stuff becomes yeah. um, more salient. And, um, I think it's, I think it's for the, been, been for the best for me. Yeah. You realize all that, that other stuff matters. It's interesting what you're talking about with the, the note taking, because I used to try to like capture every book I read and I make very detailed notes for myself. And I found that I, one was like, so focused on that. I was actually losing some of like the connecting the dots and it just became like, felt like a ton of work. And now I've started to share some of the themes and the ideas with other people. And for, for some reason for me, trying to externalize it and share for others is more helpful than creating it for myself. Mm. And I don't do it as much, but the things that I do really stick. I don't know. Have you experienced anything like that? I definitely think that, um, you know, there's a truism, which is like, if you want to really know if you understand something, like teach it to someone else, Mm. you know, I think that's totally a thing. Um, I think that the note taking setups and stuff are, are definitely actually super helpful for people that write a lot of content. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely see my my reading and my writing being like fundamentally connected. The reading enables the writing and the writing helps me like reinforce and understand what I read. Like I'm writing a piece right now about exposure, exposure therapy. Mm. Um, and uh, it's something that I know quite well, I think, um, and have done a lot of myself. But like writing about it and trying to organize the ideas, you're just like, wow, this is way more complicated than I realized. You know, like how do I yeah. actually like, tease this out and express it in a, in a simple way. That's like, um, that's pretty clear and situation specific. Um, and yeah, so I think that's a thing. I think we're also finding in every, that, um, teaching itself, like, like a course is a, is a really cool way to like, to, to do this, to, to learn stuff, um, and to kind of get feedback on, on your ideas and, and, and start to tune them. So we, we just launched two courses and it gets like, the writers that work on those courses, it gets them like way more psyched about writing and gives them like way more ideas. Cause they're like, I have to like put all my best ideas into this like package and I have to present it to people. And I get that immediate real time feedback. And, um, it just made me realize like, it's not an accident that research universities force professors to like teach, you know, and yeah. there's, there's only so much writing and thinking you can do every day. And teaching right. is this thing that kind of like stirs the pot. It instigates, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. it makes sure that you're like solid on the fundamentals. Um, and so, uh, I, I think it's a really cool component of what we do as part of like the intellectual journey that our writers are on. 
That makes so much sense. I think that's the thing that I noticed is that I tolerate so much messiness in my own thinking and, you know, just there it's like, oh yeah, that's fine. And then you realize when you start to consolidate, it's like, oh no, I need to clarify these ideas. I need to organize them better. And so that process is of like thinking about how others digest it is, is super useful. You talk about, you know, as you go kind of beneath the layers of productivity, you mentioned state transitions, which is something that I'm fascinated by. What have you encountered there with state transitions? Can you remind me what you're what you're referring to? Because um, I've I've written a lot of different yeah, things about, about absolutely. Different so things so and, the way yeah. I interpreted it, which was like we, we realized that productivity, everything we're trying to do, is about shifting our emotional state, our state, you know, from being one way into another. So we're trying to be productive, but we're really just trying to shift ourselves into a place where we are capable of doing that thing that we want to do. At least that's how I interpret. It. I have no idea if that is what you intended by it or no. I think you're totally right. Like. Um, I think that there are certain states that we associate with productivity. It's like there's kind of like a uh, alert but calm type state that you're kind of like leaning into. Um, and, you know, if you listen to someone like Andrew Huberman, who has the Huberman Lab podcast, he'll talk about like um, like ways to shift into that state. Like if you, um, if you focus on the horizon for like a, a minute, um, it like changes your ability to like uh, – uh, move towards goals that are outside of your, like your personal space. Um, and similarly, like there are, there are other states that are like more about, um, being in your own, in your own personal space where you're not going to go get anything. You're kind of like calm and relaxed and able to relate. And, um, yeah, I do think, um, productivity is about being able to, to manage, manage those things. It's like being able to start a task when you want to being able to main, maintain focus and attention on that task while you're doing it and then being able to stop when you want is like a really core piece of productivity. And it's something that's really difficult for a lot of people. I mean, it's difficult for everyone at different times, you know, like how many of us like end up procrastinating or have inboxes that are overflowing or whatever, cause we can't start, you know, and learning about like, okay, what are the, what are the, like the blockers for that, that transition I need to make to like actually start doing my inbox and like, how can I get rid of them is a really interesting question to ask. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I really think that like the emotional state that you're in, um, it doesn't necessarily like govern your behavior totally. Um, but it kind of greases the wheels for the behavior. It makes a behavior more or less likely to happen and, uh, learning how to like manage the states you're in and, and accomplish transitions from one state to the other is a, is a really, really good way to like start accomplishing things you want to accomplish. Totally. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of, of Johnny Miller, who I've had on, on this podcast. And I, I took his course, Nervous System Mastery. And I think what's so powerful about it is he's teaching protocols that are all about aligning the nervous system to whatever activity you're doing. And so he's giving people tools to like shift their state in, in different directions, nudge it different ways. I'm curious, have you explored any breath work? I know you're, you're big on the meditation side, but have you done, done breath work? Not, not like super in depth. I've done a couple of things. I've done like a holotropic breathwork class, mm. which is like, it's wild. Yes. Um, we, yeah. Very wild. <laughs> I love it. Like, um, like I've done, um, like I've done acid. I've done shrooms. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've tripped for real Yeah, and it's not that, but it's like not that far off either. Oh, for sure. Um, and you're literally just like sitting there like for five minutes manipulating your breath and you're like, holy mm -hmm. shit, that's, this is crazy. You know, how crazy is it that 
our bodies can basically recreate a somewhat psychedelic state through our breath. It just blows my mind. It's unbelievable and it's super quick and it's available anytime. And it's like, wow, yeah. that's, that's, that's wild. I've also done some kind of like Wim Hofy type stuff. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you do, uh, I, I did like an ice bath once and you like, you like get into the, the tub of ice yeah. and it's like the coldest thing you've ever experienced. And it's horrible. But mm-hmm. like in order to, to, in order to prepare you for that, you do like breathing exercises and you kind of like learn about different breathing styles that activate your parasympathetic or your sympathetic nervous system. Um, and, um, and so that was that, that that's been quite fun. It's not something that I do like day to day, but I've seen Johnny on Twitter and he really makes it seem appealing. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of into it. I mean, I, I do feel a bit like a fanboy just going around like preaching this, but it, it truly had that big an impact on me. And I think the cool part is like the ones you're describing, I've explored similar things and it's very big. It's like dramatic and, you know, the experience is wild. Some of the stuff that Johnny does is just, it's these tiny little things like mm. alternate nostril breathing where you just like do two minutes where you cover one nostril and you breathe and that, you know, lowers, like it just shifts your state into a much calmer place. And so like to fit into a line with the stuff you're talking about, on the other side, like, you know, we've talked about exercise. He has this form of bellows breath, which is, you know, also called breath of fire. A few minutes of that and your state comes up. And so if you're like mm. feeling like you're not in a place where you want to exercise, this is a very simple thing you can do. And all of a sudden your body is like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm game for that. Right. Right. So you're not, you're not necessarily doing pre-workout anymore. You're, you know, you're ditching the, the like yeah. noxious blue liquid and you're just doing bellows breath. Exactly for you. I love yeah. that. I'm into yeah, it. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. You don't need Jack 3D or Super Pump if we want to you know, go <laughs> go old school. Uh, it's it's like you can naturally recreate that that environment, and it's uh, yeah. So it's it's fascinating. But I think that idea, like I hadn't thought about it from a productivity perspective, and so yeah. it's really fun to see what Johnny's talking about, and then what you're talking about. Um, are there other, so what are some other areas as you've kind of surfed beneath the surface of, um, of productivity? What are some of the coolest things you've discovered or the stuff that just like you've gotten really, really excited about? Well, one really interesting thing for me has like my inbox is always my, my, my bug, bugabear or bugaboo. Mm. I don't know. It's, it's been a problem for me. <laughs> um, and I go through these like periods of, um, everything is great and I'm like pretty on top of my email and I feel like a king, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or like a machine. I think machine is a good metaphor for like what it feels like to be on top of your inbox or like a, an entrepreneur, like a, like mm-hmm. a high performing entrepreneur is like a machine. And, um, and then I go through times where like my inbox is like totally overrun and like, and there's just like zillions and zillions and zillions of emails and I can't even think about it. And the fact that it's overrun makes me avoid it more. And I like get stressed out even thinking about it right now. Like I'm sweating thinking about this, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, I really wanted to figure out like, how do I fix that? Um, and I started to think about, um, yeah, how does my inbox go from a state of like being super clean to being like completely overrun? Because when it's super clean, it's actually like quite easy to keep it, keep it clean. And, um, it's only when it's like overrun that it's like really hard because when it's clean, like when, when an email comes in, like I respond to it right away and it's like really easy. But when it's getting to that place of like, there's more than 20 emails, just looking at it, I'm like, I don't, I can't do this. Um, and I realized that like, there were these moments where it would kind of like go from clean to overrun. And if I just caught it at those moments, it would make it easy to keep it clean all the time. And I needed to find a way to like consistently intervene at like right at that time. 
And one of the things that I've discovered about myself and and doing all this stuff is I'm like quite motivated by like social pressure um, and having someone kind of like looking over my shoulder um, or checking in with me about something is a really good way for me to like get stuff done that I might not ordinarily do myself. And this applies to lots of different parts of my life. Um, I've also discovered about myself that I have a lot of shame about this um, and that I don't feel like I should need that. Um, and I'm a little bit embarrassed that I feel like I do. Um, but over time I've been like, well, I can either like deal with the like shame of needing someone to like help me and have a clean inbox or I can have a messy inbox all the time. Mm. And I'd rather just like deal with the shame because it's kind of a one-time thing. Like I'm not really ashamed of it anymore. Now it's like, fine. I don't really care. Like whatever works, you know? Mm. Um, and so what I decided to do is just put a couple of times on my calendar every week and have my virtual assistant call me at those times. We call it admin time. And she just says, like, how many emails are in, are in your inbox? And I say, like, 30. And then she's like, how many are you going to get done in 30 minutes? And I say, 10 or 15. And then uh, she calls me back in 30 minutes and says, like, how many did you do? And I'm like, hmm. I did five. I was, like, fucking around. And she's like, how many are you going to do for the next 30 minutes? And and so that little process, doing that three three three-ish times a week, like, helps me keep everything to a manageable level where like I stop avoiding my inbox and like, it's always clean enough that as things come in, I'm dealing with it. And every once in a while, I still have a period where I like skip admin time or whatever. And I'm just like so busy that I can't look at it and it gets a little messy, but like by and large, those like big waves and those big spikes are like gone. And I have like a very nice superhuman inbox streak that, um, I'm, I'm enjoying, like keep keeping alive. Um, and, um, yeah, I think I think that's that's been a that's been a big one for me. I have other ones, but I'll stop there in case you want to in case you want to jump in. I, I'm thinking about how I need to take that approach to my kitchen. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm really into cooking, and it, it, if I can just keep it at a certain level, it's beautiful. It's always and then there's a tipping point where it's like, and I don't even want to look at it. I don't want to go in there. Uh, so my wife gives me a hard time about that because it's like I'll either like clean it where it's spotless and like you know, you could literally eat off the counters, or it's just like. So I, I'm going to try to see if I could take that approach. I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly what it looks like yet, but it's it's a good inspiration. Yeah, I think um, I definitely find that anytime I'm avoiding something like that, it's like if I really kind of feel into it, there's this like knot of like I'm bad or like I have mm. to face that I'm like did something wrong um, in order to like do the thing. And the thing might not even be something I want to do. So like when it's something I don't want to do and I have to face that I like might've done something wrong, it's quite easy for me to be like, I don't, I'm just going to like go off and do something else, you know, like the kitchen's messy. Like I don't want to like even think about that, you know, until it gets so bad or someone yells at you for like not doing it and they're like, okay, I got to do it. I got to, I got to do it. You know? Yeah. Oh, Dan, this is turning into therapy quickly. I think you're, (laughs) I think you're bringing it back. I was a kid and during childhood people were mad that I was too messy. Yeah. No, I think there's a, for sure a shame there. But what's interesting is like, you never don't like I have never cleaned and then we're like, man, I really regret it. I clean that up. Like I feel better every single time you do it. And it's one of those examples of something that like, you don't want to do, but you do. And every time it's positive, it's kind of like the gym, you know? Right. Um, and this is another area where like I have a trainer and Mm -hmm. I show up for the trainer and if he's not there, I stop going, which is not great. Um, I've done, I've done other, um, periods in my life where I'm working out a lot where I like see a trainer once a week. And then I, I work on my own a couple times a week without that person. And that actually works quite well for me because I know they're going to kick my ass if I haven't like maintained 
my like my strength or cardio or whatever in between. So that's that works. But like right now, I, I just see him three three times a week because I'm just like I don't want to think about it. And if I, I if I know I have to show up for my will, and it, that's been great. Um, and yeah, just I'm just learning that uh, babysitters are like highly a highly powerful productivity mm-hmm. tool for me. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, well, let's jump in on the fitness front because it's uh, it's one I wanted to touch on later, but we can we can just talk about it now. Do yeah. you feel like, given what you've kind of noticed and how you've reframed reframed productivity and recognizing the power of the body, like does that create more motivation or different motivation to exercise more? Yeah, I think um, when I'm feeling like shit, um, taking a run or lifting weights helps. Um, and also, I think taking a run or lifting weights um, helps me feel less like shit in the first place. Um, and I think generally we walk around imagining that we're kind of like brains in a vat and that like our bodies are kind of like quite disconnected from the feelings of the feelings we have in our, our general consciousness, but like, it's definitely not true. Um, and maintaining a certain level of fitness, like, yeah, I think helps, keep you away from some of the like more extreme emotional states and also helps to get rid of them if they occur. Um, but also like when I'm working out and I have like a good day, like I deadlifted a lot or whatever, or like I bench a lot or whatever, I, wa- I walk differently and my, my back is straighter and it, I, I can bring a kind of different energy when I have this embodied sense of like, I'm a strong person, mm-hmm. you know, it just, there's, it does something to me that I I really like and really value. And it's shocking to me how quickly it goes away Mm. if I don't do it. Um, and so, and I don't like that. I don't like feeling like it's going away. And so I, I think that, um, yeah, that, that state, once you, once you get there, it's like kind of a, it becomes a feedback loop. It becomes self-maintaining. Like I want to, I want to keep this up you know? And then if you get out of it, the, the opposite is also a feedback loop. It's also self-maintaining. It's like going to the gym is so hard and I fucking hate it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm sore every time and I don't see why anyone likes this, you know? And so I, I really try as much as I can to keep myself in the, in the first equilibrium. What what I think is so powerful about what you're saying is I think a lot of people have this frame of working out, exercising, where it's like saving for retirement, where I'm going to do it now because I want to be healthy over the long run of my life, or I want to lose weight, you know, down the road. And it's so unmotivating for people because it's in the future. And I think what's powerful about a lot of what you said is you've brought the benefit into the moment. You're like, I feel better. I'm leaving the gym and I feel better. Like I'm doing work later and I feel better. And I think that's the ripple that exercise and other things um, has where you do it in the moment and it just spreads across your life. And I think it even spreads to other people. Like I, I saw you mention at one point, like all of your friends are getting into strength training, uh, which is, I get a huge kick out of, cause it's like, let's get, you know, let's, let's have the tech world, all these people like just start to discover the power of, of deadlifting and all that stuff. It's, it's wild when your tech nerd friends are like sending you videos of them, like benching and they're like, check it out. Like I did 225 today, whatever. And you're just like, I thought we were nerds. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, it's definitely been a thing. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's like a more broad cultural phenomenon or it's just like, um, specifically about the set of people that I'm friends with who are like 10 are like at this point are getting a little older, like we're getting mm-hmm. into our late twenties or, or early thirties. And, um, 
are starting to think more about like having kids and being around for their kids and then are also trying to like lead a higher performance lifestyles. And so it, it kind of like comes together as a thing that I guess a lot of people are doing, but it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun to see. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating how it takes on a life of its own in, in different communities. And I, 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 I'm really excited to see kind of some of the shift to more embodied living. I think that, um, it's emerging in all these different places. And I think it's, uh, even I was an athlete growing up, but it was never, it was always like very forceful and it was never very embodied. So it's, it's fascinating to see. You have a pretty strong background with meditation, right? Yeah. I mean, it depends on kind of like what circle you're from. I think how strong my background is, but like I've been meditating for a while for probably like 10 years. Um, I've been meditating, like I've, I've been on a, a bunch of retreats. Like I've done like 10 day retreats. I've done seven day retreats. Um, and I do it every day. So I, I think it's like a somewhat serious practice, but like there are definitely people who are like way more, you know, Buddha brained than I am. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I feel like if you go so far down that you stop being able to be the CEO of a company because yeah. <laughs> it's like the practice takes over your life. So how how has that practice shaped your views around productivity, your just day-to-day life and your thinking about all this stuff? Mm. There are a couple like I think really interesting things about meditation. Um one is um I think that that's I think that meditation is a way to operationalize some of the things that you realize like or or know to be true but like don't necessarily like haven't like um totally internalized so um by kind of like training your training your attention and like keeping your attention kind of like on your breath and like um really paying attention to your conscious experience you can kind of like start to notice things that you probably wouldn't ordinarily notice you can be like how does my attention um or how does the how does the the world around me kind of like shift and change moment to moment Right. Like you can kind of like bring a lens like that to, um, to the thing that you're observing and you can kind of like start to have realizations that like shift, shift your perspective. And so if you're looking for ways to like shift your perspective or realize something, being able to hold it in your brain and look through it as you meditate is like a really good, interesting way to, to internalize it. Um, and I think a lot of people are like, end up looking for those kinds of things. Like if you're, if you're into like cognitive behavioral therapy and there's this whole idea of like, um, people have, um, ways of looking at the world that are like kind of maladaptive. Um, and, uh, you end up catastrophizing or you end up, um, uh, doing like fortune telling or mind reading about other people. And cognitive behavioral therapy is like, um, helping you to like adopt a like lens on the world that helps you see that like people aren't judging you or helps you see that, you know, bad things don't happen if you say the wrong thing or whatever. Um, and I think that meditation can help to supercharge some of those ways of looking. Cause you can kind of, as you get into a deeper meditation state, you can, you can adopt those views. Um, it's a little bit hard to talk about, but like, it's, I think that's been super powerful. Another really interesting aspect of meditation is, um, there are a lot of meditation practices that uh, incorporate um, the idea of like shifting your emotional tone as part of the meditation. So there's a lot of like compassion or like meta practices that I think are like incredibly helpful. Um, and you can do this in like various ways. You can like repeat kind of like um, compassionate or loving kindness, like phrases in your head, like um, may I be happy? May I be safe? May I be well? Um, or you can like imagine 
a like compassionate figure or even yourself um, and like feel those like those emotions kind of um, in you. Um, and, and the idea is like everyone has circuits for like kindness and compassion in their brain and they're evoked usually automatically. Like if you look at a baby or something, um, but you can learn to evoke those emotions and apply them to yourself and to others. And particularly when you're dealing with like states of fear or like really difficult circumstances, like having that like ability to like bring in a compassionate presence is like, is quite helpful and quite supportive for productivity or like any, any circumstance where you're doing something hard or hard or ambitious. Um, I think that's really cool. And you can obviously see this in like lots of religions that don't even have necessarily like a contemplative component. Um, wearing a cross is like a similar kind of, kind of idea. Um, this just, you can just do that without necessarily needing to believe anything supernatural. Um, and I think finally, particularly for me, um, meditation is like a really good way to, um, expose yourself to things that are scary and learn how to be with them and process them and not look away. Um, and that is like, I think an extremely powerful thing. Um, and, um, it's, it's a way to like face your fears, learn that they don't control you, uh, learn to make them smaller than they seem, uh, learn that they're separate, they're separate from you, um, all that kind of stuff. And I think there are all these ways that like we subtly either avoid things that we, we are afraid of, or don't even realize that we're afraid of them at all. And having a grounded practice to like examine them and look at them, um, a can help you move through them and B like sometimes just dissolves them completely where they don't bother you as much anymore. And that's really cool. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. Have those practice, I mean, you mentioned earlier, like the anxiety, the panic, have those practices been pretty helpful for you as you've gone on that journey? And is that, um, you know, how, how do you incorporate all these different pieces to support yourself through, through those, those challenges? Yeah, it's been super helpful. Um, and obviously it like, doesn't get rid of it. You know, like I was nervous when we started this podcast. Um, but it, a makes it less, a lot less likely to happen. Um, and B when it does happen, it is less of a big deal. Um, and so you can, you can kind of learn to, um, to contain it better or hold it better. Um, and, and as you get, you know, better at it, maybe, maybe it goes away completely. I don't know. Um, I'm at a, I'm at a port, point in my journey where it's like, it's still there, but it doesn't bother me as much as it used to for the most part. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, I think it's been super helpful. I think for, for panic in particular, um, it, it's tricky. Like you don't want to, um, recommend one, th- like something to someone that like has an issue like that without mm-hmm. knowing all the details of it. So for example, for some people, meditation actually makes panic worse right um because you're when you're you know feeling panicky you're feeling like you might uh suffocate um and so putting your attention on your breath can like heighten those feelings mm. and if you're doing that intentionally it could actually be quite interesting because like if you're intentionally heightening heightening the feelings to show yourself that you're not suffocating and it's just like a false alarm in your brain great right. but if you're doing it because you're expecting it to calm you down and it makes it worse, you're going to like have a bad time. So 
Um, I don't know that I necessarily recommend um, meditation specifically for panic, but for for lots for for like general anxiety stuff, mm. um, I think it's like I think it's it's super super powerful. Even if it doesn't quite, you know, it doesn't quite necessarily work in this in the way that you might think. Where it's like, it's not necessarily always about calming you down or getting you out of the fear state. It's about learning to sit with it so that it doesn't bother you. Yeah, that makes sense. It's yeah, it's fascinating to me how we have these little simple in, in theory um, protocols, whether the breath work or the meditation, and how they can just you know nudge us in different directions. As you've explored productivity from different angles, and it seems like your your approach and philosophy has evolved a bit. Do you feel like I mean, obviously, how we approach productivity shapes how we work. It it drives what we do moment to moment with work. Do you think it also starts to shape ourselves in any way, like how we approach that? impacts kind of who we are and, and how we are in the world at all. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the, the thing about productivity is it's about, it is about changing yourself. It's like hmm. the a synonym for productivity is like self-development. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's like a really powerful idea and it can also be used in ways that like, are counterproductive to its purposes. So if it's coming from a place of like a, or a feeling of like, I'm fundamentally broken and I need to develop myself in order to fix myself. Um, it's like this endless quest to like optimize away all the bad. Um, and that's like never possible, you know? Um, and, and this is something I'm guilty of. Like mm -hmm. I just, I, I can't like, I love just figuring out, okay, what's wrong and how I fix it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a very, um, natural state for me to be yeah. in um when you and, when you mention cbt it's like I, I i've done some of that it's like i'm an expert at cbt like you know like <laughs> rationally you know i can do that really well it was actually like act mindfulness based stuff that was like oh i need to learn that or like yeah yeah so it's just funny yeah that's actually part of the self-development productivity path is like realizing mm. that um trying to get rid of every problem is now mm. getting in your way it used mm. to actually be helpful and then you kind of take it too far and it's like now getting in your way. And, and then it's like, well, in order to kind of get to the next step, it's the thing that I need to do now is work on like self acceptance and being like, I'm okay the way that I am. And I think the reason why people don't want to do that is because like, well, if I accept myself then I'll just like do all this bad stuff. Um, mm. And the thing that um, I think I've learned over the last couple of years, like, well, and I can, I can tell you more about like how, but the thing that self-acceptance does is it helps you actually see what, who you are and like what you're bringing to situations. If you don't accept yourself, you're going to hide all the shit about yourself that you don't like. Hmm. Some, some of it you'll be able to see, but a lot of it you won't be able to see. Yeah. And so you can't change it. And so all of these like compassion practices are like actually not about just like being a, being a scumbag and like being okay with it. It's mm -hmm. about knowing the ways in which you maybe are kind of a scumbag so that you can change it. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's like, I think super powerful. It's super powerful for, for yourself. And it's also super powerful for all, all of your relationships. Like if there are people in your life who are, who are important to you, who there are things about them that like you, you, you really don't like and don't accept, they will like hide them from you or like do all this stuff to kind of like get around the dislike that they feel about it. Mm. Um, but like creating a, um, a safe container where it's like, it's okay to like kind of screw up in this way creates room for the person to, to change. 
Um, and it's this weird thing. Like you have to trust that they're going to change in order to accept it. You know, um, it's like, it's a, it's kind of a crazy thing to conceptualize, but it's kind of the only way to do it both for yourself and with other people. Um, and it's, it's been a really important part of my emotional development. Hmm. Have you read advice not given by Mark Epstein? No. Okay. But I know Mark Epstein, not not personally, but I know of him. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he wrote a, he wrote, this is one of his more recent books, but it for it helped me for a lot of the stuff that that you're describing. Um, it com- it combines like the Western psychiatry psychologist perspective with the Buddhist eightfold path, and yeah, it just it really helped me with a lot of the acceptance and and kind of he he, he takes people through an interesting journey with it. Um, you you have an article that's that just resonated a ton with me, and I I've kind of been thinking a lot about similar ideas and wrote wrote something along a similar lines, but this notion of you know we all are trying to change the world when we really should be thinking about changing ourselves. Yeah. Uh, could you, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think that there's this, um, the article is called changing the world to change yourself. And it comes from something that I noticed about myself and that I think applies to a lot of other people is people who tend to lead like ambitious lives or like want to start companies. I, they often have like, a an early childhood experience or set of experiences that revolve around like some sort of rejection or feeling like a misfit. Um, for me, like when I was in, when I was in middle school, I just like, didn't feel like people kind of like paid attention to me or like wanted to hang out with me or like when someone made a joke, like no one would look at me to like laugh, you know, like I just was like on the outside a little bit and it created this feeling like, well, I'm going to show you, like, I don't, Mm. I don't care. Like I'm going to go get super rich and then, you know, in like 20 years, you're going to have to come over to my, my, my mansion and like hang out with me because I'm going to be awesome. Um, and it's not, that's not the only reason why I learned to program, but it certainly was like a motivating factor. So Dan's going to come back to high school graduation. He's going to be jacked, driving a fancy (laughs) car and you know, all of the, all of the people are going to realize, you know, they're going to be so jealous of my newsletter business. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was, I think, you know, honestly it was part of it for me is like yeah. a sense of social rejection. And so, um, you go out to like change the world. Um, and, and you think like, this is really about changing the world, but actually it's about changing yourself or changing this thing where you're like, people don't like pay attention to me. And, and like, maybe that means that I'm like not worth it unless I go do this other thing that will make them, make them do it. And so mm. you go on this like journey to, um, to change the world, but like, really what you're after is like to feel respected or, or usually it's actually like to feel loved and connected. Um, and, uh, the, the like weird paradox is like when you go out and do all that stuff, it doesn't like, it, it, it does bring you a lot of the attention that you are seeking, but it doesn't like actually give you the like feeling of love and connection. Um, and you don't make, you don't necessarily make those kind of relationships and you're not actually even necessarily like looking for them, like subconsciously, maybe like you're actually pushing them away. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that article was, was really about that realization and the realization that, um, you can go and start a company for those reasons. Um, and, or you can like start a company because you actually just want to start a company and you can like work directly on 
this thing that you want, which is like a feeling of love and respect and not expect your company to like give that to you. Cause if you do, if you subconsciously expect your company to like fill that for you, you're going to do all sorts of weird shit that you like probably shouldn't. And it won't be mm-hmm. about like starting a good company. It'll be about you and the thing that's missing for you. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and you're much more likely to, to achieve a place of like feeling connected when, you actually just like focus on, you know, building good, stable, deep personal relationships or like giving that feeling to yourself um, is another is another big one. And you can do that in the context of running a company. So it's it's about like unraveling while you're actually doing stuff. And I think that's yeah. a really juicy topic to explore for anyone who's like leading an ambitious life where, where they're they're trying to achieve stuff. Yeah. For me, it's, it's that, it's funny you mentioned ambitious because the last decade has been this wrestling with ambition, identity, and how interwoven that is with work. And like, you look back and you realize how you've done certain things for reasons you didn't even know you did it. You convinced yourself like, oh, I'm doing this for this reason. It's like, no, 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 it's not that. So I'm super curious, like you've made a you know decent shift from running a technology company to running, you know, a, a writing business what's the, what's like the underlying ambition that you have with every? That's a great question. Um, like just very simply, like we want to create an an institution in business writing. Um, I think we have an idea for the kind of business writing that we like, which is uh, long form, thoughtful, written by people who are, um, actually like work in the industry that they're writing about. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's actionable. Um, but is also like nuanced and like, isn't just like hustle porn. Um, and yeah, there's like, there's like kind of the hustle porn set and then there's the like HBR kind of set and, and, and like fast company and whatever. And we're kind of trying to be a little bit in the middle where it's like, it is like, we care a lot about the craft we care of of writing specifically. Um, we care, we care a lot about like making sentences beautiful and, um, yeah, having it be thoughtful, but like, also we care that the people that are writing it actually know what they're know what they're talking about and it's detailed and specific enough that like someone can take the article and like do something with it like can actually like it can actually help improve their their the decision the, the decisions they make or the um the, the the business that they're running um and so yeah that's that's kind of that's the that's the idea for every that's the that's the the dream i think there's a lot of different ways that that can happen um and I think if we do that, it gives us a lot of permission to do lots of other interesting stuff, but um, that's the core of it. And it always has been. How does that, how does that connect to kind of your underlying, like you personally as Dan, your evolving ambition, your, your identity, like how, how do you think about kind of, that's the company, but for yourself, like how is it scratching your curiosity and and where, where you see yourself going? That's a great question. Like I've always had these two strands in my life. I've always loved writing and I've always loved like business and technology. Um, Mm. like I started programming from a really early age to like show those kids in middle school that like (laughs) I was the man, Uh, (laughs) really worked well. Um, and, uh, and I've always loved it. Like I built lots of apps in middle school and high school and I I programmed a lot in college and I started previously had started this enterprise software business. And, um, and so I think every is this perfect middle ground for me. Like, and I've always tried to like resolve them into one mm-hmm. thing. And every is this like perfect middle ground for me where I get to um, do the thing that I love. Like I spend like from nine to noon every day, like writing. And then I also yeah. get to do the other thing that I love, which is like from 12 to six, I like, I operate the business. Um, mm-hmm. And that's super fun. I love like sitting in a 
meeting with our growth team and like figuring out like, um, like how are the ads doing and like, how can right. we like lower our CAC or whatever? Like that's fun for yeah. me. I don't want to do yeah. that all day, but I, I can definitely do it for half the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, I get to live this sort of split life between, I spend a lot of my time thinking and writing and making stuff. And then I spend another chunk of my time, like actually going out and doing it. And I think that they like feed each other quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, it also lets me make stuff that I want, like that I wish to see in the world. Like, I think we make the kind of writing that I wished I could have read more of when I was in college or whatever. Um, and I think that writing has this really important function of like, one democratizing information. And I was super lucky, like in my kind of coming up years, I was able to access a lot of people that, um, knew a lot about business and can like, could like help me make decisions, but like a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. So getting that information out of people's heads and like into onto, onto the page, like creates opportunities for people to start businesses that don't have the opportunities that I had. Um, but also I think that like another core function of writing is just like making people feel less alone. Mm. and that i think is like my core one of my core things what we Mm -hmm. talked about like kind of the desire for connection um and i've talked about the dangers of mixing your desire for connection with um with the business that you run but um yeah but but i do think um just as like an aspiration to um to aspire to, to help people feel less alone it's like a really good core motivator for me um and uh, yeah, I, I generally like love what we do. It's it's super fun. We've all read those articles where you're just like, oh my god, somebody else gets it. They they understand me. Yeah, it, what you're describing, I mean, it brings up a ton. Like, I think that this idea of like right livelihood, which was <clears throat> in that book um, by by Epstein, and then also, you know, I just recorded an episode with Paul Millard, and one of the things that I really admire about his work is I feel like he's encouraging people to not feel like, hey, I'm doing all these things for this thing I'll get in the future. Like I'm building this business because I'm going to feel whole and I'll make a bunch of money. But encouraging people to find that thing that they can do that like just doing it brings them to life. And I think when I hear you describe it, it's like you found this thing that's like the intersect. Yeah, you're, you're, you're focusing the acquisition costs, but it sure feels better when it's about writing than like some technology widget that like, yeah, sure, it's cool technology widget, but it's not as personal. It really does, you know? And like, I think my last business was much more... Like Nathan, my, my business partner, Nathan always says like, I have these like different parts of my personality. Like one part of me just like loves to bring the cash register mm. and it's just like, how can I make money out of this? And then yeah. there's another part of me that's like, loves reading like Annie Dillard and is like interested in like, like really rich, like language and metaphors and like, uh, the beauty of the shadows on the sidewalk, like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think my last business was very much like, how do I ring a cash register? And and there's another side of me that's just like, I love technology. I love software. Like, how do I kind of like create something interesting? And then I think this business lets me do all of this stuff together in this like very interesting way that I didn't really know was possible. You know, it's only really been possible, I think, for people like me in the last like five-ish years. Because previously, it just like the idea of starting a newsletter and getting people to pay for it was like, that seems somewhat inaccessible, you know, um, like Ben Thompson, I think paved the way for a lot of people like me or people like us. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I feel, I feel very lucky about it. And I think it's also really important to, to note that like one, I tried tons and tons and tons and tons of things in order to mm-hmm. like 
figure out that this was like the weird random combination of things that would be the thing. Two is um, it wasn't necessarily like just about me deciding that it was. I think that people forget, at least at least for me, and I think certain people that have my sort of personality forget about how important it is to have like an instigator or a partner that can help you kind of like you kind of jump off the ledge together and you may not have done it without each other, you know, and you can kind of like create the thing together that you want. And I think that people end up undervaluing um, the importance of partners because you kind of like, there's this romantic method, like the lone genius. And you're kind of like, I don't want to like sacrifice my vision to like work with someone else. And my feeling, at least for someone like me is like actually working for someone else helps bring the vision out of you in a way that it couldn't have otherwise. And yeah, it'll be like slightly different than what you would have done before, but like, that's okay. It's not like a hundred percent integrity of the vision is like not actually like that important in my opinion. Um, cause your vision is probably wrong. Um, and other people can see things that you, that, that you can't see. And I think the last thing that I'll say about this is like, I'm super pumped right now. Like I love every, it's, it's incredibly fun. I've had times where I'm like, this is the fucking worst. I cannot mm-hmm. believe that I did this. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure yep. that I will say, I will feel that way again. Um, yeah. it's the only and, certainty with building a business. Yeah, totally. It's like, these things are weird because you go through, so many like energetic ups and downs and months and months and months where things are great and months and months and months where things are bad. And the business just has to keep going, you know, and Mm -hmm. it just does. And if you do that for long enough, it gets to a place where it'll survive and grow and maybe it'll even do it without you, you know, but there are all these things are people have like waves and streaks of energy and, and the energy kind of interlocks in ways that like can create lots of positive momentum or it can create lots of negative momentum and like learning how to ride those things is really important. Your Nathan's um, business relationship and like partnership is pretty inspiring. I've, I've had some, some business partnerships and it's just hard. Like it's just really hard to bring two people's vision together. And yeah. Yeah, I feel like you guys could make, I mean, you have your podcast, but I, I'd watch a little web series on like the, uh, <laughs> uh, on the, on the business relationship um, you, you just mentioned kind of something that I think is alluding to this idea you have of creative, creative extravagance, which mm. I have this phrase that I use for myself called exploring frontiers, mm-hmm. where it, it just is a reminder to, for me to just go out and like chase really weird stuff. Like if something seems interesting, go down a rabbit hole. If like some emerging modality is coming up, like go test it out. Yeah. I just find it so generative to like play around there, see what emerges and then like let the dust settle. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you feel like your like mindset around creative extravagance is similar. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that's, that's the whole thing is like, um, I think we often want to, uh, like we want to make things that are beautiful. You want to make things that are useful for people. And, um, the question is kind of how, and I think we end up often getting stuck in, when we want to make something beautiful or make something useful, we end up getting stuck in, well, I'm going to try to avoid making anything ugly or I'm going to try to avoid making anything that like no one wants to use. Um, and that means you don't end up making anything. And I think a really good metaphor for how, um, how to make things that are beautiful is to look at nature because ma- nature makes mm-hmm. lots and lots of beautiful things. And um, the way that nature does it is it just makes tons of shit. Like yep. there's so much stuff in the world. Um, and the only things that we see are things that like ended up surviving um, nature just like throws a bunch and a bunch of shit at the wall and sees what sticks. And then as the things stick, they like survive and propagate. And then those things mutate and the, the process starts over again. And like, as the mutations 
um, end up uh, uh, end up working. Like they they those mutations stick, and then you kind of create this like you create these layers and layers and layers of like beautiful intricacy in nature. You know, like looking at the the way of like a like a tree looks like looking at its roots and its and its leaves and its stems and like a tree itself is like this kind of like fractal thing where you can look at it at different scales and it looks it looks totally the same and i think that that beauty is created by this repeated process of creating something mutating the mutation survive um, and it just finds this beautiful useful thing and i think the same thing is true for us like i think that um if you look at the most productive people that um, that create the best stuff, they may not release everything that they make, especially later in their careers, but they make a lot of shit and they just try mm. so much stuff. And that's kind of where the idea of creative extravagance is. It's like when you're making stuff, just like spend your last dollar, like be as weird as possible, do as much as you possibly can and just like see what happens and then let the, you can come later with the like scythe and kind of like delete stuff if you want, or you can release all of it. I think, the earlier you are in your career, the more important it is to just release as much stuff as possible. Um, but like giving ourselves room to be extravagant, to like create ugliness, to create, you know, things that are not useful and they're just weird is like the best path to find stuff, finding stuff that's actually new and interesting. Um, and um, it's really hard to keep that in mind, but I think it's super useful. Yeah, you're totally speaking my language. It, uh, I, and people who listen to these, you know, all all the episodes, are gonna get so tired of hearing me talk about gardening. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I started gardening in the last few years, and it truly has changed my whole perspective. Just because of what you're talking about in nature, where you just confront this, like this generative kind of creating conditions, letting things unfold, trying things, stuff dies. Um, and I think what you're talking about around like learning to make beautiful things is like super super interesting as well. It it brought up what I have just read this book and I've been talking to everybody about it. Have you read Timeless Way of Building or any other have, Christopher yeah. Alexander? Okay. I went through a big Christopher Alexander phase um, a couple years ago. Yeah. Nice. So the reason I bring that up now is just, you know, talking about like mimicking nature to build beautiful things. I think it's very aligned with his philosophy. But the other thing that you mentioned earlier that just feels like very connected is that inner kind of tension that, that you feel between the two different parts of you. And I think th- one of the, the things that I took most from Timeless Way of Building was him talking about how beauty is unlocking and allowing the inner forces to like resolve themselves. Mm. And I think that's true, whether it's an individual like you or I, it's true of a business. I think it's true of a garden. And so I feel like, like he's saying people come alive when they do that. And so I wonder if you in some way are like coming alive in every, because you've, you've started to play with those two forces. I love that. I, I had forgotten that he said that. Like I, I do, you know, his big thing. I, I really liked um, uh, his book, The Notes on the Synthesis of Form. Mm, I haven't um, read that if one. You, if you haven't read that, I definitely recommend it. Um, and, you know, one of his big things is just figuring out um, the fit between a form and its context. Um. So, you know, he's talking about architecture, yeah. buildings. So the form is like the building and the context is like how people use the building and how people live in it. Um, and he talks a lot about kind of like mapping the forces that um, that create the forms, uh, sorry, that, that create the context and then finding the, the areas of misfit between the form and its context and just like getting rid of the, the misfits. And I think that the, the, that... 
um, process of getting rid of the misfits is like the process of like resolving those forces. And I guess that's where to him beauty comes from. And I love that idea. I think that's like super cool. Um, and I, I definitely think it has a lot to do like with our own sense of like, I don't know, psychological integration, you know, there's in a, in a piece like, um, changing the world to change yourself. What I'm really talking about is the idea that there's so many things going on inside of you at once. And the things that you're conscious of are like only a very small part of what's going on inside of you. Um, and like learning to bring as much as possible into awareness and then to like integrate them, like, yeah, creates a, a full individuated person. And I think it's also, yeah, it's a, it's where beauty and aliveness sits. Um, I don't know that yeah. I'm like quite there yet. I'm sure I have a lot more to do, but sometimes yeah, you have sure. moments, you have moments yeah. where it's like everything just like works mm-hmm. and you're like, ah, this is amazing, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah. And I do, I do think, I do think it's a, it's a kind of a fundamental component of aliveness. Yeah. That chase for, I mean, he talks about it like that. He literally has a quote where it's like the chase for aliveness is like the defining thing of our lives. And it's funny. I, I think the word aliveness is bubbling up in a lot of people's work. I know Michael Ashcroft talks about, it. I just feel like, you know, that, that word that people are starting to point towards. So this is a super weird question. So, so bear with me. Yeah. Uh, I saw a photo of you from a couple of years back and your whole look was different. You know, you were much more kind of like buttoned up, polished and, and looked like a, a business professional. <laughs> And, and as so opposed I'm to now where you look like a total schlub. No, that's not where I'm going. But I think that you have a slightly different vibe. Like you're, you have a more like, you know, like creative, like, I don't even know. I don't, I'm not going to try to describe it because I don't want to, to do that. But my point Please is I, I feel it, like, yeah. no, I feel like there's been, I feel like there's been a vibe shift. I, I saw the photo, I, you know, seeing you today, there's a vibe shift in kind of just how you are. And it almost feels like it kind of represents a bit of like your philosophy shift around productivity mm. and life around like super controlled versus you know, not, I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there and see what you think. I love it. I've never, no one's ever told me that before. Like they've told me you look different, but they haven't yeah. kind of mapped it to this like shift. And I think there's something there like on a conscious level, I'm like, okay, I have a beard and long hair. You know what happened to me in between when I used to ha- not have a beard and, and long hair. And now, now I, I do is like, there was a pandemic and I started a company yeah. <laughs> specifically. I started a remote company too. Yeah. Um, and like barbers were not available, you know, <laughs> for a long time. So on, on a very conscious level, I'm like, I just started doing this because I was like super busy and burned out and tired and couldn't get to a barber. Cause I was like locked in my house. Um, but I'm sure on like some sort of subconscious level. Yeah. I think that there's a big, um, I think like what you wear and like how you, how you wear your hair and all that kind of stuff has a big, um, has a lot to do with like how you feel, um, both in that it can change how you feel. Like, I don't know if you've, you've ever noticed, but like after like a breakup or something, like getting a new haircut, like really helps to like reset Mm. the, the vibe a little bit or like going to get new clothes or whatever. Um, but also it it shifts it, but also like represents it, it changes it, it, it like represents what's going on for you. And so the fact that I've kept this and the fact that, um, this look is a little bit more wild and uncontained. And as a person, I tend to be like quite contained. Mm -hmm. Um, it gives me a very, um, hopeful, uh, feeling actually of like, Oh, maybe I'm like a little bit less contained than I used to be. And maybe that's actually a really good thing. Like maybe that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. The, those inner, inner forces are emerging. I mean, the, cause there is an element when I read about your philosophy, it, it is this shift from being more contained, like the productivity philosophy is more contained and now it's more like, let's mimic nature. Let's be a little wilder. Let's let things yeah. emerge. Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I thought it'd be, it'd be funny to go there. Um, 
I mean, I think we're, we're coming up on time and, um, this has been, been such a blast. I mean, I could, I could go for, for all day just chatting with you about these topics. I think it's, it's amazing. One thing I wanted to, to just close with, you, you've shared a bit about kind of a book that you've described as, um, as one of your favorites the last couple of years and, and a word that, that stuck with me because it's just, I, I feel a lot of curiosity towards, which is emptiness. Hmm. What does that, what does that word mean to you? <laughs> this is a this is a huge topic and i'm like definitely not um not uh, uh expert enough to like really really go into it just what full, it means to you no, no one to else um but i think the the book that you're referring to is seeing that freeze and the the way that by rob berbea which is a great book and the way that you're um you're using the word emptiness um points to like the kind of the buddhist conception of emptiness which is um something like um, things are empty of a separate self, um, or, or, um, yeah, or like the, the concept of themselves as like an independent, independently arising thing. Everything is dependently arising on our consciousness. Um, and so to like put that into, uh, more, I don't know, understandable, um, terms, I, like there are times a, a way to look at it or like one of like feelings of emptiness or experiences of emptiness that have like really, changed me um i have ocd um and ocd is about uh you have obsessions and you have compulsions so obsessions are like uh intrusive thoughts that are kind of like negative that come up repeatedly and then people who have ocd have like compulsions so they they do things in response to those thoughts um so a really basic example is a lot of people have obsessions about like um uh, whether their hands are dirty and whether they're like they're going to get sick from that and whether they're going to die so that's the obsession. And then the compulsion is like, um, hand washing. So, but like, it's totally irrational, right? Like they'll have a thought like, Oh my God, my hands are dirty. And then they'll wash their hands. And then like two minutes later, it'll come back and then they just keep washing their hands. And soon enough, they're like, hands are raw. Um, and mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very hard. It's a, it's a pretty shitty thing to have. Um, but it's actually quite common. Um, I don't have hand washing things. I have other stuff, but, um, the really interesting thing about emptiness is if you do the treatment for OCD, which is exposure, which we've talked about a little bit, which is basically like have the thought, sit with the thought that bothers you and just look at it and just let whatever happens happen and let the anxiety like rise and then fall. Um, you can have these moments where something that was like incredibly scary to you um, and felt very real and very like, pushing down on you um if you sit with it and 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 you've built up concentration and you're kind of focusing on it enough you have these moments where you like you see through it and um it's a little bit hard to explain what that's like but it's kind of like realizing that something is like holographic um Mm. or um it doesn't have this like solidity to it that you thought it did um and it's still there but it doesn't affect you in the same way. Like it's not hooked into your nervous system in the same way. And that is like a kind of experience of, of emptiness. And you can be like, well, that's for like when you have crazy weird thoughts, like what people have in OCD and that's true. But I think um, what people in deep contemplative traditions have, have pretty consistently found is like, you can have that experience about anything. Hmm. Um, and if you focus on on anything um, long enough, you can like see through it in that way. You can even see through your concept of self. Um, so you have this feeling of um, right now, like you're 
a consciousness that's like situated in your head and looking through your, your eyes. Um, and, um, you can actually like dissolve that, um, if you want. Um, and doing that has like a lot of interesting effects. People find that it makes them feel freer and less anxious and more able to when joy happens to like fully experience it and fully experience happiness. And it's kind of like a counterintuitive thing. Like you wouldn't necessarily think that it would work, work that way to like have these realizations. Like it sounds actually kind of scary to realize that things are, don't have, you know, um, independent, uh, independently arising selves, but like, it's kind of cool. Um, and so I, uh, I definitely recommend for anyone that like is hearing this and is like quite, um, interested in what it means or like how to experience it. Read seeing that freeze by Robert Bea. Another, um, just like shorter introduction to emptiness is the heart sutra, Mm. um, which yeah, just Google the heart sutra and that kind of like will give you the gist of what people mean. You won't understand it, but, um, it'll, (laughs) it's like a good, it's a good doorway. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, we haven't really talked much about specifically the theme of self-renewal, but I think this and a lot of the other stuff you're talking about is so aligned to this, this notion of creating space, you know, dissolving our, our current way of being and, and some of our rigidity so that we can evolve so that new things can emerge. And I think it's, um, you know, when I read your writing, it just, there's, you know, it's, it's so cool to see how you're evolving in real time, but also kind of the things you're pointing to, and, you know, the, I just think there's a, some amazing ideas that we all can take into our lives from like a productivity perspective and so much more. So, um, if you, if people haven't already seen every, I, I believe you guys do do like a free, free trial, right. For people. We do. Um, yeah. Okay. Dan, Dan, super organized. I mean, I went through mo- most of the archive before this, there's just tons of amazing articles and that's just one of the many publications. Like there's all these other topics and it's really cool to see and kind of go down the rabbit holes and, and kind of, I feel like you've created containers where you're not just reading the article, but it starts to link to the other one and the threads go. So, um, I got a big kick out of that. Is there anything else that you want to point people towards any, any favorite resources, articles, places for people to start? No, I mean, everyone, you know, check out every, it's every.to, um, find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Shipper. Um, and if you have, you know, you want to chat, like I'm always interested in talking to interesting people. So just feel free to hit me up. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dan. I've had such a blast with this conversation. It's been, been a ton of fun and, um, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. 